This is Guns and Butter. The French indictments against Kagame, which have been issued uh, about two weeks ago, November 23rd, it was posted by Reuters. This French judge was asked to investigate the shooting down of the plane, the double presidential assassination from April 6th. He was asked to do that because the crew of the plane was French. They were French, I believe they were French military, flying the airplane, which was a Mystère Falcon donated to President Javier Romana by the son of former President Mitterrand. So I think it was Jean-Christophe Mitterrand donated this Mystère Falcon jet to Javier Romana. That's the one that was shot down. It was carrying a French crew, so the French judge was asked to investigate. And his conclusion is that Kagame and his people shot down this plane. And he's done six, seven, eight years of deep investigation into this uh, act of terrorism. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Keith Harmon Snow. Today's show, Mining the Apocalypse, Terrorism and Private Profit from the Horn to the Heart of Africa. Keith Snow is a journalist, a photojournalist, and a human rights and genocide investigator. He reported for Genocide Watch and Survivors' Rights International on Congo and Ethiopia. Keith Snow was a genocide consultant for a United Nations body in the Horn of Africa in 2005, reported from the International Criminal Tribunal on Rwanda in 2001, and provided expert testimony on genocide and covert operations in Africa for a special U.S. congressional hearing chaired by Representative Cynthia McKinney in 2001. He has worked in 17 countries in Africa and has received four Project Censored Awards for Africa reporting. Today's show, Mining the Apocalypse, Terrorism and Private Profit from the Horn to the Heart of Africa. Keith Snow, welcome. Hi, Bonnie. Thanks so much for having me back on the program. I'm looking forward to it. I noticed that uh, the president of Rwanda, Paul Kagame, is back in the news. I guess in the last two weeks or so, a judge in France has indicted a lot of his top government people in Rwanda. And I'm assuming also that Paul Kagame himself would have been indicted, except that as uh, head of state, he cannot be indicted. Is that right? Yeah, he has some sort of immunity. And there's been, uh, I think, Judge Louis Bruguier from France has issued eight or nine international arrest warrants for these top people in the Kagame government. And Kagame, of course, is uh, Paul Kagame should be at the top of that list. Now, could you explain what the indictments are and what France's involvement was originally in Rwanda? Now, France was very involved with the government of Rwanda that... Paul Kagame overthrew. Isn't that right? Well, you use the term, Paul Kagame overthrew the government. That's not what most people believe. They believe there was a genocide. It was committed by the former French-supported government, and the Kagame government, who's in power today, stopped that genocide and saved the day. Of course, the truth is, the French were deeply connected to the previous government, which was President Juvenal Habyarimana, and he had been in power since something in the 1970s, 76 or 77. And he was supported by French at the deepest levels. And the U.S. from Uganda wanted to get rid of this guy, Habyarimana, because he wasn't serving the interests of powerful corporations from the U.S. And what they did was they supported Paul Kagame, a 
so-called rebel leader from Uganda with this invasion of Rwanda, which began in 1990. So, yes, it was French has deep connections to the so-called genocide, which is a term we need to get into later and, and analyze and look closely at, not take the basic media line, which is that the standard propaganda is 100 days of killing, Hutus killing Tutsis, 800,000 Tutsis dead. That's the standard line. So it goes much deeper than that. Well, maybe we should talk about Paul Kagame, who he is, what his background is. Paul Kagame, who is the president of Rwanda, was actually born in Uganda and had military training here in the United States. Talk a little bit about Paul Kagame and his background. Kagame, of course, was uh, one of the Tutsi diaspora, and in this huge propaganda campaign, the Tutsis and Kagame have been labeled as, quote, the Jews of Africa, unquote, by, for example, the New Yorker writer Philip Gurevich, and, you know, you have to look at his connections to the State Department and why that happened. But anyway, the Jews of Africa, the Tutsis, the homeless people, they uh, launched this war from Uganda, and Kagame was put at the head of that war in October of 1990 after Fred, I think, Ruagema, I think was his name, was assassinated immediately in that war. And Kagame was trained at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas, by the Pentagon. He's deeply connected. I have a picture sitting here on my desk which shows his class that he graduated in this elite little class, and you wonder where these other Latin American and Asian-looking fellows have ended up in other governments and what kind of nasty stuff they've been up to. So Kagame was trained by the Pentagon. He was put at the head of this rebel army from Uganda. He had never been in Rwanda. He is not a Rwandan. He's a Ugandan-born, not a refugee, but a foreigner. And he was the director of military intelligence under Yoweri Museveni during the war which established the control of Museveni in Uganda in 1984-85. So Kagame's background is terrorism, repression. That's what he did for Museveni, director of military intelligence, massacring, you know, whatever you need to do, by any means necessary to establish control over whoever it is that you're fighting. So that's Kagame's background. Now, Paul Kagame was being trained by the U.S. military at Fort Leavenworth, when someone else in this faction that he was involved in was assassinated, right? And then he was put at the head of the Rwandan Patriotic Front? Is that how it went? Yes, the Rwandan Patriotic Front, Rwandan, which was the political arm, the Rwandan Patriotic Army, launched its invasion from Uganda into Rwanda in 1990. And that began this four-year, five-year war to basically overthrow the government of Rwanda at the time, which was this French-supported juvenile Habyarimana. And of course, we're talking about deep political and economic ties between France. Mobutu in Zaire was very close with Habyarimana. And Habyarimana had other very close ties to other French-supported dictators who'd been in power for 20 or 30 years, including Guinness-Abe Iadama, the president of Togo, and uh, the president of Gabon, for example. So, What happened in 1994? A plane was shot down that was carrying both the president of Burundi and Rwanda. And this is getting back to these recent French indictments against Paul Kagame's top lieutenants, let's say, in Rwanda. What happened in 1994? April 6, 1994, the stage had been set, the ground was ready, the fruit was ripe for this massive, massive killing to unfold in Central Africa in this tiny little country called Rwanda. Now, the U.S. knew about this, and the U.N. knew about it. 
French knew about it, the Belgians knew about it. The French and the U.S. and the Belgians had different factions fighting against each other for the previous four years leading up to April 6, 1994. And just prior to that, Prudence Bushnell, the State Department agent from the U.S. under the Clinton administration, and Susan Rice and Tony Lake, these top-level officials under Clinton, had organized this peace process in Tanzania. So they had the president of Zaire, Mobutu, fly over there, and they had the president of Rwanda and the president of Burundi, and it was brokered by the Tanzanian government. And it was supposed to be, it was the Arusha Accords, it was called. And... Um, Actually, there had been some previous Arusha Accord meetings as well, so I may have that incorrect. But anyway, in April 6, 1994, flying back to his own country, President Juvenal Habyarimana and the President of Burundi and the Chief of Staff for the Army in Rwanda were all on a plane that was shot down on the approach to Kigali Airport. Now, it's been called a plane crash over and over and over by the media. Immediately, they established it as, as a suspicious or mysterious plane crash. It was never anything of the sort. It was a double presidential assassination, an international act of terrorism. The U.S. has blocked every attempt to investigate the plane crash. And there's claims by um, top U.N. officials who were in, in office at the time that the CIA was behind this shooting down of that plane on April 6, 1994. And, of course, that sparked the famous so-called 100 days of killing that have all been, you know, all these dead bodies have been attributed to the Hutus, which is another part of the mythology. So Kagame played a major role in shooting down this plane. The information has come out in various ways over and over and over, and it's been completely suppressed by the media. One of the first reporters to report anything about the role of the Kagame network, there was a network that Kagame had established, and the Belgians were connected to this, and the U.S. was connected to this. One of the first reporters to report on this was a fellow from Canada, so Kagame was definitely involved in orchestrating this double presidential assassination and shooting down the plane. They used surface-to-air missiles that apparently you know, were well-tracked, and they were known to have gone to Uganda and then to Rwanda. They came in through the U.N.'s specially organized um, weapons-free zone. And so the U.N. had a role in this. The United Nations peacekeeping mission at the time had a role in this assassination of two presidents. And this, of course, is completely hidden by the media. It's completely hidden by the International Criminal Tribunal on Rwanda. But there's actually some transcripts now, some testimonies by defense lawyers against certain witnesses that are top-level officials, like General Romeo Dallaire, the Canadian general. And you can see that there's a strong bias in favor of covering up what happened, in favor of the RPF, and never, ever getting to any of the deeper questions about who did it and who's responsible for sparking this cataclysm, which resulted in you know, the death of millions of people and subsequently the invasion of Congo, Zaire, from Rwanda. Now, the missiles that were used, or the missile that was used to shoot this plane down on which two African presidents were flying, these missiles were traced back to Paul Kagame's group. Isn't that right? Yeah, they were traced even further back to, apparently they came out of, I think it was Iraq, and this has been well established. So yeah, there's all kinds of investigations that have been done which point to Kagame and his people. In fact, the, the most darning evidence is the defectors, the people who have left the Rwandan Patriotic Front and the Rwandan Patriotic Army and its you know current manifestations, and they've defected and openly claimed that the... Kagame government and his military leaders did this killing, and then all of this other stuff that has been completely hidden by the media or f 
from the American public, for example. Now, you mentioned this general Romeo Dallaire, and I've noticed in some of the articles that you have written that this General Dallaire actually was working on behalf of the United Nations, and also that it was he who was responsible for shutting down one of the runways at the airport in Kigali. Yeah, defense attorneys from the ICTR have sent me documents which show that Dallaire played a very specious role in what was going on in Rwanda at the time and sided openly with the RPF. And, you know, that's the whole framework of overthrowing the government of Habyarimana, the previous government of Rwanda. It's the same thing you see going on in Sudan. It's this incredibly rich, sophisticated, organized overthrow of a government using all kinds of psychological operations and perception management in the media. So what was going on at the time was when this RPF, led by Paul Kagame, invaded Rwanda in 1990, no one raised a red flag and said, hey, there's an insurgent group waging a war against a legitimate sovereign government, and we need to hold them to account for human rights atrocities and for violating international law by invading a sovereign country. No one said that. Instead, Amnesty International and this guy Alex DeWall, who is currently writing all this stuff about genocide in Darfur, they started to publish this stuff about how the government of Rwanda, the Habyarimana government, supported by France, was committing massive genocidal atrocities against the RPF invaders. Now, the RPF was invading. The Rwandan Patriotic Front was an invading army, but they didn't ever stand up and say, look, this army should not be invading. We should pull them out, and this is a violation of international law. Instead, they sided with the RPF, pressured the government of Habyarimana all over the place, accused them of genocide as early as 1993, and this includes Alison DeForge, this human rights watch expert on Rwanda who's published a book as well. And Dallaire, he was put in, he was a Canadian military agent, a general, he was put into the head of the UN peacekeeping mission in Rwanda in October of 1993, and immediately went about working on behalf, in very nefarious ways, working on behalf of the Rwandan Patriotic Front and bringing the government of Rwanda to the bargaining table. And so that's how they did it. They manipulated the government of Rwanda into a position where they had to come to the bargaining table and bargain with terrorists, which would be the Rwandan Patriotic Front. And all the time, the Rwandan Patriotic Front was getting its foot more and more in the door of Rwanda, establishing greater military control, greater political control, greater economic control. It was sending in agents. It was disguising some of its own people as government soldiers and committing atrocities, and then they were being blamed on the government. This is the same thing that's going on in Darfur today with the Janjaweed. There's definitely covert forces in there. People are being disguised as the enemy, and they're committing atrocities, and then they, they have a tactic of leading the media to the dead people and saying, look, this is what those terrorists did. But no one's ever held to account for the role of this covert operation and the psychological operations behind it. So Kagame was the advance guard for this huge psychological operation and military operation. And behind him was General Romeo Dallaire, the head of the UN, who was a Canadian military general. And he today is, of course, a member of the Canadian military. And he published a book called Shake Hands with the Devil. And he's all over the place with respect to this, I'm going to call it the overthrow Sudan stuff, which other people call genocide in Sudan, save Darfur, you know. Now... Paul Kagame's Rwandan Patriotic Front invaded Rwanda from Uganda in 1990, but the presidential plane was not shot down until 1994 
which then supposedly, or did actually, set off the Rwandan, what everyone refers to as the Rwandan genocide. Is that right? That's absolutely correct. Four years of insurgency warfare, clandestine covert operations, weapons being flown into Uganda by the United States, all kinds of covert operations going into Rwanda from Uganda and also Burundi, the assassination of the president, the democratically elected president of Burundi in 1993, almost exactly the same time as General Romeo Dallaire showed up in Rwanda, and then the, the assassination of the subsequent Burundian president again in April of 1994. I'm speaking with journalist and human rights investigator Keith Snow. Today's show, Mining the Apocalypse, Terrorism and Private Profit, From the Horn to the Heart of Africa. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Now, why was the United States supporting Paul Kagame to go in and take over the Rwandan government? What is behind all of this? What's going on? Well, that raises the, you know, the, the big explanation that everybody says. We don't have any interest in this tiny little country called Rwanda. All they have is a few gorillas, G.O., you know, the, the four-legged, hairy, uh, bestial kind of species that's related to humans, as opposed to gorillas, G-U-E-R, the soldiering kind. In fact, Rwanda would become the base of operations, the trigger point for the attack, invasion, and overthrow of the government of Zaire, Mobutu Sese Seko. And, of course, Mobutu was very much supported by the U.S. for years, and, and so people are confused. Well, if the U.S. is overthrowing the government of Rwanda because they're supported by France and establishing a new government in Rwanda, then why are they overthrowing their own client, this guy Mobutu, in Zaire, which is the big state to the left of this tiny little country, Rwanda? Well, the answer is minerals, oil, natural resources. Zaire is the richest, absolutely the richest country on earth with respect to natural resources. Mobutu, it's true, was a man totally backed by the United States, but this gets down to very intricate and sophisticated and, you know, twisted networks of corporate and military and economic control. So you've got corporations fighting corporations, and they have their individuals, and they have their presidents, and they have their dictators, and they they support one side. They'll support both sides if they realize that one side's going to be overthrown. So at the time, for example, powerful political factions from Belgium and the United States and multinational corporations were supporting both Kagame and Habyarimana's groups in Rwanda from 1990 to 1994, because they didn't really know how it was going to end up, and they wanted to make sure that they had control in the end, and that they were on betting on both horses, so to speak. So Kagame's role was, with Museveni, the president of Uganda, was to overthrow the government of Congo and reorganize, entirely reorganize, that deeply entrenched dictatorship, extortion, all of the networks of criminality that had been going on there for 50 years, totally supported by the CIA and the Belgian arm of the intelligence and the Mossad and the British arm of intelligence and all these corporations and all these powerful Belgians to overthrow that system, reestablish and reorganize and gain control of resources that some powerful factions didn't have control of. That's why Clinton, the Clinton administration, was very much deeply behind what happened with respect to Uganda and Rwanda invading the Congo and the Bush you would say the Republicans had a deeper connection to Mobutu at the time. So, for example, Pat Robertson, under the disguise of humanitarian operations, he had exploitation 
networks taking diamonds out of Mobutu Zaire for years. And so did Maurice Templespan, this guy very close to Clinton, very close to the Democratic Party. But also, for one reason or another, he was able to maintain his connections to the Mobutu government through the CIA and get the diamonds out and other products during the 60s and 70s and 80s and 90s. So it becomes this, as I said, it's this really serpentine difficult to unravel networking of extortion and criminal racketeering and weapons and and you've got different corporations and different individuals on different sides and even people within the US government itself would take different policy positions in support of or against Rwanda or in support of or against Uganda and it involved you know the SPLA the Sudan People's Liberation Army from southern Sudan also a US supported clandestine group trying to overthrow the government of Sudan for over a decade. Yes, it's all very complicated, but to simplify it, would you then, are you saying that the overthrow of the Rwandan government by Paul Kagame and his uh, Rwandan patriotic front, supported by the United States, had more to do really with the Congo, more to do with the Congo than Rwanda itself? Yeah, Rwanda's a tiny little state. If anybody can look at the map and see how small Rwanda is compared to Congo or Tanzania, it's even smaller than Uganda, which is a small country. I mean, it's tiny. It's not even as big as... They used to compare it at the time in 1994 to a state the size of Vermont, whereas the Congo is as big as the United States east of the Mississippi or east of the Ohio River, one or the other. It's gigantic. So the the prize was the Congo. And to do that, they wanted to use this little country, Rwanda, as a base of operations, because Tanzania and Uganda, already very much in the U.S. military court, the U.S. had deep connections to Tanzania and to Uganda from a military standpoint. And so, in 1994 and in 1995 and in 1996, for the invasion of Congo, the Pentagon was shipping in, the Air Force was shipping in. C-130s were flying into Entebbe Airport in Uganda. Every 10 minutes, a new plane would arrive for months carrying military equipment that was destined for Congo. And I have direct testimony from eyewitnesses on that. I have testimony from eyewitnesses who were in the Ruwenzori Mountains between Uganda and Congo who saw U.S. military, white guys, you know, U.S. military, clearly, training. This is in their own... They saw them because they were sharing the camp where these guys, these other people, had some biology conservation projects. And they saw U.S. military training Ugandan and Rwandan soldiers who then went into Congo. Other eyewitnesses testified to sophisticated listening equipment and bases set up on the island, for example, in Lake Kivu, which is between Rwanda and Congo. So all of this went through Uganda and Rwanda. And the whole point was to not only overthrow but annex the eastern Congo, connect it to the Ugandan, U.S., U.K., Israeli, Belgian base of operations or control from Uganda and Rwanda. So in a sense, it's a very simple picture. The RPF was the U.S.'s military agent with the Ugandan backing. Israel and, and the Pentagon were training the soldiers. We sent in troops. They overthrew Rwanda. We then overthrew Congo. And then it got a little bit more complicated as other powerful business factions fought back. And that resulted in the second war for Congo, some people call it, which began in 1998. Now, what's with these French indictments against Paul Kagame's, higher-ups in Paul Kagame's government? What's going on there? Well, the problem with the whole French thing is that people in the United States who bought the propaganda, who ate it hook, line, and sinker, which is all we got in 1994, 95, and everything since then, it's the same old story by the same 
people that are propagating this mythology of what happened in Rwanda. Genocide in 100 days, Hutus killing Tutsis, 800,000 people dead with machetes. Nothing could be further from the truth. The real story, the French were deeply involved. As soon as the U.S. supported Kagame's Patriotic Front invaded from Uganda in 1990, the French dropped 500 paratroopers and fought them back. So this is a war. It's just like Darfur today. It's a war. It involves France and the United States at deepest levels. It involves China and Taiwan in Darfur. But back to Rwanda, in 1990, the French dropped 500 paratroopers and stopped the invasion. And so for the next couple years, from 90 to 92, 93, the French eventually pulled those paratroopers out because of international condemnation, because the forces aligned against the French control were so strong between the British, the Belgian, and the corporations that the French had to pull out those people. And then the RPF kept sliding its foot into Rwanda. But the French, over the next four years, from 1990 to 1994, did play a major role in the killing. They did organize massacres. They organized people to commit massacres. They organized assassinations. They were fighting against the Rwandan Patriotic Front, Uganda, Israel, the United States, and factions from Belgium. Not everybody from Belgium, but some factions from Belgium. And so the French indictments against Kagame, which have been issued uh, about two weeks ago, November 23rd, it was posted by Reuters, this French judge was asked to investigate the shooting down of the plane, the double presidential assassination from April 6th. He was asked to do that because the crew of the plane was French. They were French, I believe they were French military, flying the airplane, which was a mystère falcon donated to President Javier Romana by the son of former President Mitterrand. So I think it was Jean-Christophe Mitterrand donated this mystère falcon jet to Javier Romana. That's the one that was shot down. It was carrying a French crew, so the French judge was asked to investigate. And his conclusion is that Kagame and his people shot down this plane, and he's done six, seven, eight years of deep investigation into this uh, act of terrorism. You know, Keith, I read an article about Paul Kagame actually being in Great Britain recently and meeting with the Queen. I saw the pictures. (laughs) Yes, so he's going about, I assume, gathering support from other countries because of these French indictments. It's much deeper than that. Not only does he meet with the Queen, he meets with George Bush in the White House and has prayer breakfasts. He's been down to the Baker Institute in Texas, which was named after Howard Baker. And he's been out in California with some big AIDS foundation. He's connected to Chevron and Pfizer. He's been all over the United States since 1994, always with this sad story about the genocide committed against his people, the Jews of Africa. All he has to do is mention genocide and everybody shuts up. Nobody's going to speak up against him. But the fact of the matter is, Paul Kagame is is a a notorious war criminal, isn't that right? He is the number one agent of terrorism on the planet. If if we're talking about dead bodies alone, you know, millions in Rwanda and Congo, millions, 10 million in Congo is the number today that I think is... This is is also a number given by the, uh, the people who are working in Spain, who also have a people's tribunal kind of thing and a lawsuit against the government of Kagame because six Spanish priests were killed... I believe it was six Spanish priests were killed in 1994, and it's believed they were killed by the RPF, the Rwandan Patriotic Front, Kagame's people. So the killing was Kagame's people. And when we go back to the issue of, you know, Kagame meeting with the Queen or meeting with George Bush, Kagame and the RPF have a vast network doing not only disinformation, but protesting and doing assassinations. And all they have to do is point the finger at anyone they want, 
who's from Rwanda, whether they were Hutu or Tutsi, anybody who's become an enemy of the state, even if it's because they're speaking the truth about the government of Rwanda killing people or whatever, all they've got to do is point the finger at him in Chicago, for example, and say, this man committed genocide, and he'll be arrested by the immigration officials. Now, this happened three years ago to a man named Zuzu who's in prison in Chicago today. At the same time, Kagame has his network all over the country, people that have committed massive atrocities within his defense establishment are now in positions of power within the United States, working as either agents in the embassy or as part of the ambassadors' networks here. And he has individuals who are professors at colleges, and this is his network. And he sends in money, and he will ask them to protest. So when the judge issued these warrants, which were after Kagame and his top people, of course, Kagame immediately stood up and said, these people are denying the fact that the French were involved in a massive genocide, and they're just trying to cover up the genocide against us poor Tutsis, who, the Jews of Africa. And Kagame's people have been paid to organize protests at the French consulates in Chicago, for example. I was there on December 1st, and at other places, other embassies and places around the world. And the protest is on this basis. Genocide was committed against us. The French are denying their role in this. They've issued these warrants. It's all political, and they're just trying to get themselves out of a deep hole. We didn't do it. The Hutus did it. And basically, it's just a massive political effort, which is completely, on one level, backed by powerful factions in the United States, in the government, corporations, individuals, Clinton, Hillary Clinton, Donald Payne, Susan Rice, Anthony Lake, Prudence Bushnell, the same people who are today organizing, you know, massive foreign affairs, foreign intelligence programs, whether they're psyops or they're effectively invasions, like Tony Lake and Susan Rice are calling for with respect to Sudan. And these people aren't going to speak up about the role of what happened of the Kagame government committing this massive terrorism in Central Africa because they're implicated. Susan Rice is clearly implicated. Yeah, Keith, I want to get into who these top-level U.S. officials are, but I wanted to mention before we do that that an activist friend of, my, of mine in uh, Montreal, Quebec, called me maybe six or eight months ago, very upset because Paul Kagame had been allowed into Canada, and of course there are very powerful Canadian mining interests that he is affiliated with. It, does Canada play a part in all of this? Massive. Absolutely. Canada is completely involved. First of all, there's General Romeo Dallaire, former current Canadian military agent. He's a general in Canada. He was the head of the UN peacekeeping, quote, unquote, peacekeeping mission in Rwanda in 1990, established in 1993-94. And then he did the work of the, the RPF. He made sure that the plane that was carrying the two presents could be shot down because he closed one half of the runway on request of the RPF. Then he made sure that there was no investigation of the plane crash. He's a Canadian general. There's Barrick Gold Corporation, which has interests in eastern Congo, which was very much connected to Uganda and Rwandan interest and still is. And, of course, Barrick Gold has mining operations in Tanzania, Mali, Niger, or Burkina Faso, six countries in Africa. So Barrick Gold, who are they? Former Prime Minister of Canada, Brian Mulroney, is one of their directors. Former U.S. Senator Howard Baker is another one. Former U.S. President George Herbert Walker Bush is their international advisor. Shell Oil Company, very deep with Canadian connections as well as American connections and Dutch connections, very much behind Kagame. All kinds of 
Canadian mining companies like um, this guy, Jean Raymond. We can talk about these people that I call the untouchables. There's Jean Raymond Buell, or Bull, and he was very close to Clinton. And these guys came out of mining companies in Canada, set up a base in Hope, Arkansas in 1995, right after we'd established control in Rwanda, meaning the United States established control in Rwanda, and then moved into the Congo under and eventually changed their name to a company called Adastra Mining, which has big contracts in Congo today. There's all kinds of little Canadian mining companies that aren't so little that, whose names I can't necessarily remember, but Sutton Resources or, or uh, Banro, all these mining companies connected to Museveni and, and Kagame and the mining in eastern Congo, or even not even in eastern Congo, in other parts of the Congo. So the mining alone, and then there's these private military companies like Executive Outcomes and Sandline International and Military Professional Resources, and these can all be linked to the United States and Canada and the U.K., I'm speaking with journalist and human rights investigator Keith Snow. Today's show, Mining the Apocalypse, Terrorism and Private Profit, From the Horn to the Heart of Africa. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Now, Keith, you mentioned earlier the Second Congo War that Paul Kagame was involved in, and, and in 1998. Was there another invasion of the Congo from Rwanda then? Yeah, I always I hate it when people break it up into wars, but I have to do that to explain to people what happened because it's one big gigantic war that's still going on basically which began in 1990 with the invasion of Rwanda from Uganda, culminated in the overthrow of the Rwandan government by the end of 1994. Halliburton subsidiary Brown and Root set up a base in Siangugu in Rwanda in 1995 and then launched the war against Congo, against Zaire at the time. It was called Zaire, but now it's Congo. And they took out this guy, Mobutu Sese Seko. They marched completely across the country, massacring Hutus, refugees, children, and women who've never had a weapon in their hands in their life, all across the country, killed 800,000 to 1.2 million people. And this is another report that's buried in the UN that you won't find. There's several of them. There's the Hurrigan Report, which is about the shooting down of the plane. This is a UN-commissioned report by, a, I think it was a U.N. investigator called Hurrigan, who found out that Kagame shot down the plane, and the report was completely buried when it started to surface at the ICTR, the International Criminal Tribunal. And then, marching across the country of Congo, the Rwandans and Ugandans did all this killing. They killed all these refugees. And another guy, Garretton, this Chilean investigator, he wrote a report called the Garretton Report, and he found that there were massive atrocities committed by the Rwandans and the Ugandans. And this was completely buried in the U.N., and it remains completely buried. So they took out Mobutu. They marched all the way across this vast country, took out Mobutu, and put in this guy named Kabila. His name was, he was Kabila the Pair, they call him, the father, because today's president is supposedly his son, Joseph. But the father, Laurent Kabila, who was put in power at the time, was a bartender. He owned a bar in Dar es Salaam, the capital of Tanzania. And basically, Madeleine Albright plucked him right out of Tanzania and put him at the head of this war to overthrow the government of Congo. And then when they actually succeeded with the total Pentagon and Israeli and Belgian and U.K. military support to overthrow Mobutu, they put this guy Kabila in. Now, Kabila, they didn't count on the fact that Kabila was going to think for himself. (laughs) His first mistake was to throw out Bechtel. Bechtel had this huge master plan of how they're going to reorganize all the infrastructure, everything, a vast master plan, apparently. And this guy, Kabila, said no to Bechtel, and he said no to the IMF. 
And he threw out the Rwandans and he threw out the, the Ugandans, and that began what's known as the Second War for the Congo, which began in 1998. Because what the Pentagon didn't count on was that all of these people, all of these governments would come to the support of this guy, Kabila. And these are governments that are connected to other multinational corporations whose interests were threatened or who realized they could get a piece of the pie if they support Kabila and fought for it. So that would be Zimbabwe, and I mean, it involves Zimbabwe, Angola, Namibia, Gabon, Tanzania, Uganda, Rwanda, Sudan, U.S., U.K., Belgium, you know, all of these, Portugal, Canada, all of these entities were involved in the second, even the first, but the second war for the Congo. Well, Keith, now Paul Kagame has come out publicly and claimed that the shooting down of the presidential plane in Rwanda in 1994 was actually a legal act. Isn't that right? Yeah, Kagame's trying to, basically, it's Kagame's state-owned newspaper, but somebody's directing the state-owned newspaper to produce these, this line of propaganda. And the line of propaganda is that the shooting down of the plane was a legal act. It was an act of war. It was, a, it was a period of war. There was a war going on at the time in 1994, and therefore it was a legal action. So then why is he doing this, in order to exonerate himself in case uh, something comes of these indictments? Yeah, the, the, the article in the New Times, which is the state-owned newspaper, said it was a legal action shooting down the plane at the time. During a time of war, it was missiles that shot it down. That was a legal act of war in a time of war. And then the article goes on to say, but the Hutus did it. We didn't do it. It doesn't say they did it. It doesn't take responsibility for it. But this is clearly the beginning of a propaganda campaign to exonerate Kagame and his zero network, it was called, for their role in killing and for immunity against this French judge by establishing that, first of all, they've always said it was a mysterious plane crash, or that's what the media says, and there's never been an investigation, or the Hutus did it. It was the Hutus, just like the film Hotel Rwanda sets it in the public mind, that the Hutus did it, and then they blamed it on the other ones. Well, the fact is Kagame did it, the RPF did it. Now they're in a tight spot because there's more and more pressure coming from all sides or many sides anyway, there's still a lot of defense of Kagame and covering it up, but there's a lot of pressure coming on him now because of this French judge and these indictments. And so it appears that Kagame's propaganda line and his number one, James Kabarebe, the number two terrorist on the planet, their propaganda line is that it was a legal action. The Hutus did it, but it was a legal action. That's just ridiculous. It's completely the de facto admission that it's going to be soon enough that the RPF indeed did shoot down the plane that was a double presidential assassination, and also the assassination of the top military official from Rwanda on April 6, 1994. And when that comes out, it's going to have deep connections to the CIA, and, but these links have already been established. But there's the CIA connections, and there's the Belgian military connections, and then there's the connections to General Romeo Dallaire and other UN agents in Rwanda at the time. Well, now, speaking of the United Nations... Keith, a little earlier you had mentioned U.S. government officials, people that are involved with the United States government, the United Nations, that are on certain U.N. agencies, for instance, Susan Rice, Anthony Lake, etc. Could you talk about these people and their involvement, first of all, with the U.S. government and in Africa generally? Yeah, I'd love to. I'm looking at this Washington Post article. It was an editorial by Susan Rice, Anthony Lake, and Donald Payne pretty much three unheard of with respect to U.S. government business or positions. All of them were in positions of power under the Clinton administration, and I believe Donald Payne remains in a position of power today under the Bush administration and was previously. 
Who are Susan Rice, Anthony Lake, and Donald Payne? Well, their Washington Post article says, this is the title, We Saved Europeans, Why Not Africans? And it goes into how Darfur is about to be hit by, Darfur, which is Sudan, of course, is about to be hit by this second round of genocide, and how we saved Europeans in Kosovo with a humanitarian action under NATO, and not a single American died. Well, why can't we do the same to save these people in Darfur? They go on to say, well, we failed in Rwanda. We didn't stop the killing there, and why can't we save Africans? Well, who are Susan Rice and Anthony Lake and Donald Payne? Anthony Lake was born in 1939. He was a national security advisor under Bill Clinton from 93 to 97. That was both the Rwanda genocide and the invasion of the Congo, which finished the overthrow of Mobutu in 97-98. Lake also had a deep role in the war in Bosnia and the NATO bombing of Bosnia, which, again, is something that could be completely deconstructed for all of the mythologies. But let's go back a little deeper to uh, Anthony Lake. He was an assistant under Henry Kissinger. And, of course, Kissinger's name is all over this stuff because he's on the board of the International Rescue Committee and the International Crisis Group and on the board of a couple other things which you can ask me about. And back in the 70s, what Lake did with Kissinger was he forwarded this idea about using nuclear weapons in Vietnam. And this tells you where Anthony Lake is coming from. Kissinger and Lake. Lake was one of the people that was providing information to Kissinger as an aide and several other people about using the nuclear option against the North Vietnamese. And now this is very similar to what we're seeing today with respect to using the nuclear option against Iran. And it's more than just, you know, saber-rattling. There's some serious discussion about whether we should use nuclear weapons against another country. And this article by Lake and Rice and Payne is basically advocating the invasion of the bombing of the government of Sudan, the bombing in Sudan. It says, for example, some people will reject any future U.S. military action because of Iraq and torture scandals in Afghanistan. And people will respect this future military action, reject it, especially against an Islamic regime, even if it's purely to halt genocide against Muslim civilians. And that's what the claim is in Darfur. So they want, in this article, this editorial, which is, as I said, it's October 2nd, 2006, they're arguing that we should bomb, use Air Force and Navy to bomb the government of Sudan, to bomb Sudan. It's a naval blockade and a bombing campaign. So this is a very deep pro-warfare position that Lake and Rice and Payne are taking, and they've basically been involved in this kind of U.S. terrorism since 1960s when Anthony Lake was under Kissinger. So Lake went on to become National Security Advisor for Clinton, which means that he was connected to the National Security NSA, the National Security Administration at the deepest levels and, and responsible for some deep policy decisions. Today, Lake and Susan Rice are also on the advisory board of this thing called the America Abroad Media. And basically, that's 100 radio stations in the U.S. and 145 countries worldwide, and they use the National Public Radio Network to put on this programming, which is pro the thinking of these powerful officials, which include the big new Brzezinski and Robert Gates, the guy that was just nominated. He'll be sworn in on December 18th as Secretary of Defense and Anthony Lake and Susan Rice, they're all on the board of this America Abroad Media, and it's a massive public relations perception management psychological operations campaign using national public radio. Currently, they're advocating the overthrow of governments of Sudan and other policy international foreign intelligence positions. So that's Anthony Lake.
He also had a deep role in Angola in the 1996-97 time frame. He was doing the bidding of a guy named Maurice Templespan, and he organized an export-import bank loan for Maurice Templespan and his diamond operations, his diamond deals. So this is connected to mining, extortion, and racketeering in Congo and Angola. And Lake came forth during his time in the Clinton administration, and even afterwards in his other positions, always praising this new generation of leaders, which include President Paul Kagame and President Yoweri Museveni, and the president of Ethiopia, who we will be talking about, and the president of Eritrea, certainly not the president, the leader of Sudan, because he's a militant Islamic terrorism. And Lake has deep connections to all of these other corporations because of the role that he played in the National Security Administration, National Security Advisor under Clinton. And he was helpful in removing Boutros Boutros Ghali as the Secretary General of the UN in, 19, I think it was 1997, because Boutros Boutros Ghali was not willing to take the American line. And they replaced him. Madeleine Albright and Anthony Lake did this, had Boutros Boutros Ghali removed, and had him replaced with Kofi Annan, who then went on to do some of the bidding of the U.S. in this position in the U.N. That's a little bit on Anthony Lake. I'm speaking with journalist and human rights investigator Keith Snow. Today's show, Mining the Apocalypse, Terrorism and Private Profit, From the Horn to the Heart of Africa. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Susan Rice was appointed under the Clinton administration. Now, her mentor was a guy named Roger Winter, and Roger Winter in the 1980s was organizing with the Tutsis, the Tutsi diaspora, the so-called refugees of Africa, of Rwanda. He was organizing to begin thinking about how to overthrow the government of Rwanda. Now, this is in the late 1980s. He had meetings in Washington, D.C., this guy, Roger Winter. Today, he's in Sudan as the head of USAID, United States Agency for International Development. Roger Winter is playing the same role in Sudan that he played in Rwanda or with Rwanda in the 1980s. And this was 1996, 1997. Roger Winter was meeting with officials who were today leading the lobby to overthrow the government of Sudan, claiming genocide, claiming save Darfur. And they were organizing their plan for strategically, basically strategically overthrowing the government of Sudan. Now, Susan Rice was apparently appointed because of her deep ties to Roger Winter. He was apparently the chief lobbyist to get her appointed into her position under Clinton. Because of her connections to Roger Winter and her connections to Lake and all of these connections, she's basically been doing the propagandizing for what went on at the time, what went on in Rwanda and Uganda. So she was covering up war crimes. She was covering up covert operations. She had all of these nefarious roles that she played, flying around to these places and doing the bidding of these powerful officials and corporations to basically organize the overthrow of the government of Rwanda and the government of Congo. Now, speaking of the United Nations, Keith, you've done a lot of work yourself doing research, genocide research, for Genocide Watch and Survivors' Rights International in Ethiopia. With regard to this report that you have written, you're going to release this report, is that right? Yeah, my apologies go out to some of my colleagues back in the UN who I worked with in the fall of 2005 because I'm going to uh, release this report, which remains secret within the UN. It's something that the UN doesn't want to talk about because there's fears that it will provoke the government of Ethiopia to punish the UN or punish the UN bodies that I work with and throw them out of the country, for example, 
because the report clearly establishes that the government of Ethiopia is responsible for massive atrocities against innocent men, women, and children within its own country, within Ethiopia. Ethiopia is a, is a very large country bordering Sudan, Djibouti, and Somalia, and Kenya. And Ethiopia today is in a state of chaos and warfare, and it's absolutely not in the, not in the news. The news coverage of Ethiopia is in complete disproportion to the chaos and warfare that's going on. The Ethiopian government is today perpetrating, and has been for years, perpetrating atrocities against the Anuak people. They're an indigenous people in the south. Their home state, their home area, region is, is a Gambela state, which is in the southwest of Ethiopia. And the Anuak people also lived in, in the zone where they lived, used to be part of southern Sudan, but that was divided by the uh, colonial powers when they divided up Sudan and Ethiopia. So there's Anuaks in South Sudan. That means they have connections to the Sudan People's Liberation Army and to the operations that go on in South Sudan. And what happened was the Anuak people, the indigenous people who are one of the largest groups in the Gambela region, were targeted on December 13th because there was an act of terrorism that was committed, and the government immediately blamed it on the Anuak people. It was an attack against a U.N. vehicle, a UN, United Nations, an, a, an affiliated, Ethiopian-affiliated group working with the United Nations High Commission for Refugees, and the vehicle was ambushed, and some, I think four to six people were killed. And, and the government immediately accused the Anuak people of, and Anuak rebels of having committed this massacre of these four to six people, and it launched this gigantic campaign against the Anuak people that turned out to be well-planned. It actually was a op military operation. It actually had a, a name, and the Human Rights Watch has documented this, and uh, I think Harvard University has done some documentation. And the targeting meant that some 2,000 to 3,000, I can't remember the numbers, but it's 2,000 to 3,000 people were killed in the period of December 13th to 15th and or the weeks immediately following. Now, large numbers of women were raped. People were forced out of the country. Refugees fled. Men were arrested. Men were shot. Men were run over by vehicles. Women were run over by vehicles. People were burned in their huts, burned alive in their huts. And the UN at the time had some agencies working there, in particular UNICEF, United Nations High Commission for Refugees, the World Food Program, doing relief work. And so some of these agencies were present at the time when this government soldiers did all of this killing. Actually, it involved government soldiers, but it also involved these people called the Highlanders, which come from, as it says, Highland regions of Ethiopia. So they're ethnically different from the Anuak people. But the suggestion is, and it appears that the government of Ethiopia was involved in organizing these people against the Anuaks. And just as you had in Rwanda on April 6, 1994, there was a kind of a powder keg situation that exploded once these six, four to six people were killed. And, and then the government sent out its troops and did all of this massive killing against the Anuak people. And since December of 2003, there's been what you might call a slow, steady genocide or elimination by attrition. And I hesitate to use the word genocide just as I hesitate to use the word genocide with respect to Sudan and Darfur because 
on the one hand, it's genocide against the African people. You've got African people dying by the millions all over the continent. So there's this massive genocide perpetrated by capitalism or Western institutions or Christianity or Judaism or all of the above against black people in Africa. And that's very real. In Darfur, you can say there's a genocide. Thousands of people have died, hundreds of thousands of people. In Ethiopia as well, there's a genocide against the Anuak people. But at the same time, the Anuak, there are Anuak rebels fighting against the government and they're being supported by outsiders, you know, and there are, there are rebels in the Darfur region on a much bigger scale being supported by the U.S. and supported by Israel, and they're fighting against the Khartoum government. The case in Ethiopia, and the reason we don't hear about Ethiopia is because the Ethiopian government is completely backed by the Pentagon. And the Mele Zanawe, the current president, is allowed to commit atrocities. Now, Ed Herman and Noam Chomsky published a book called The Political Economy of Human Rights, where they get into the fact that some human rights are considered atrocities, and other human rights violations are not considered atrocities. And this is dependent on whether the government is friendly with the U.S. corporate interests or it's unfriendly. So, for example, Gabon, 1990 or 1991, 2,000 students were massacred in Port Gentil, and we didn't hear anything about it. And in Tiananmen Square, we heard all about the massacres that occurred in the same 1989 time frame. And that's the political economy of human rights. It suggests that, for example, there's genocide in Sudan, but there's no genocide today in Ethiopia. So my report, which was, by the way, I had a colleague working with me who does not want to be named, and this colleague is a former Human Rights Watch lawyer and an international legal expert trained by the international legal community who's taken some very high-level positions within the international criminal tribunals as well as the you know doing genocide work and Human Rights Watch work. So... Together, we produce a 95-page report which looks at how, basically, the bottom line, the final conclusion you know, that you have to talk about is the fact that within 10 years, we believe these Anuak people, their culture, their entire way of life will have disappeared from the planet. So the problem is that the UN has this report, and they aren't talking about it because they're very close with the government of Ethiopia. They don't want to be kicked out of the country, or they don't want to offend the government of Ethiopia, who's very close to the Pentagon and brings up all of these connections to Tony Lake, who is the head of UNICEF USA. And the government, the agency that I was working for at the time in the UN last fall was UNICEF. And it was a an exceptional consultancy because UNICEF is not a, an investigative body and it's the United Nations Children and Education Fund, but they brought in myself and this other genocide expert to investigate the situation because they were no longer able to pursue their programs because the government was committing so many atrocities and the Anuak people were fighting back. The question comes up exactly why they had this investigation commissioned because finally the report was never released. It wasn't even given apparently to the government of Ethiopia, although the government of Ethiopia apparently is aware of it. They made him aware of it, and so they used it as a lever against them, but never anything critical, never anything serious. And if you look at the level of death and despair in Ethiopia and Gambella, my God, the women and children are just, they don't, the women sit around drinking and smoking this local stuff that completely zones them out to the reality of the fact that soldiers could come at any moment and rape them and take the men and kill the men in front of their eyes and commit the most egregious atrocities that interviewing hundreds of people over the course of three months in some of the remote, most remote territory on the planet, we were able to document and to compile into a very clear case of, of how a government is committing massive atrocities against its own people. 
And the same thing is true in other parts of Ethiopia. So there's a, there's a massive campaign against the Oromo people, and there's an Oromo Liberation Front, which has been fighting against the government. What's behind the Ethiopian government's attack on the indigenous populations, the Anuaks and others? Oil. Has oil been discovered in the Gambela region? There's huge Chinese-Malaysian oil exploration going on in the Gambela region. There's also gold, and it's a food-producing area. There's all of these tribal conflicts that are going on that have been stirred up by the government. But the bottom line appears to be that the Gambela region is rich in oil, and the, the government has to get these Anuak people out of the way in order to exploit the resource and, and profit from it. At the same time, in other parts of Ethiopia, there's much more vast regions and concessions of oil. If you look at the map of Ethiopia, the oil map that you can find, for example, I think it's on the Trap Rock Peace Center website, but certainly on my website, the oil map of Ethiopia shows that the Agaden Basin, which is the east of the country and, and about one-third of the country, is just vast oil concessions that are being fought over by corporations and for example, who are we talking about? We're talking about Petronas and the Chinese National Petroleum Company, and uh, Asia Brown Bavari wants a piece of this action, and that had former director of Asia Brown Bavari was Donald Rumsfeld, big Swedish firm, and Hunt Oil Company has big action interests and Halliburton in Ethiopia. And the U.S. military has a base in a place called Herso, Ethiopia, where there's at least 2,000 U.S. covert forces now, you can find that information on the web and verify for yourself that the Herso Ethiopia is the base of U.S. covert operations. And Ethiopia is an important ally of the United States because of its connections to the Red Sea. Keith Armand Snow, thank you. Thanks so much, Bonnie. I've been speaking with journalist, photojournalist, and human rights and genocide investigator Keith Harmon Snow. Today's show, Mining the Apocalypse, Terrorism and Private Profit from the Horn to the Heart of Africa. In addition to working as a genocide consultant for a United Nations body in the Horn of Africa in 2005, Keith Snow researched and reported for Genocide Watch and Survivors Rights International on Congo and Ethiopia. He is a four-time Project Censored Award winner for Reports on Africa. Keith Snow's essays and journalism, including Hotel Rwanda, Hollywood and the Holocaust in Central Africa, are posted at his website at www.allthingspass.com. That's www.allthingspass.com. You can contact Keith Snow by email at keith.harman.snow at gmail.com. That's keith.harmon.snow at gmail.com. Guns and Butter is edited and produced by Bonnie Faulkner and Yara Mako. To leave comments or order copies of the show, call 510-848-6767, extension 628. Email us at faulkner at gunsandbutter.net or visit our website at www.gunsandbutter.net. Hey, yo, these are some serious times that we live in, G. And our new world order is about to begin. You know what I'm saying? Now the question is, are you ready for the real revolution?
solution, which is the evolution of the mind. If you seek, then you shall find that we all come from the divine. You dig what I'm saying? Now if you take heed to the words of wisdom that are written on the walls of life, then universally we will stand and divided we will fall because love conquers all. You understand what I'm saying? This is a call for all you sleeping souls. Wake up and take control of your own cipher and be on the lookout for the spirit sniper trying to steal your life. You know what I'm saying? Look what decides yourself.